a lot of these altcoiners, they're kind of into following some leader. They want to hear what some billionaire or what some celebrity says. You know, they're waiting for a next celebrity pump or they're waiting for, you know, Lindsay Lohan to endorse their, you know, their altcoin and some, some silly thing like that. And I feel like Bitcoin is the true anarchist money. I mean, look, Steve Wozniak came out a couple of days ago or yesterday or whenever said something good about Bitcoin, but so what? <laughs> we don't care. It's not like you know, it's like cool. Yeah, we're we're happy. Steve Wozniak said something positive about Bitcoin, but I think I think some Bitcoiners were like, "Well, have you fucking bought any? Don't just say something positive. Go out and buy some." That's the you know. So we don't really care uh, who you are. We don't care if you're Elon Musk. We don't care if you're the richest man in the world. We don't care if you're the biggest movie star. If you say something stupid about Bitcoin, we're gonna tell you to have fun staying poor. Welcome to the Tucson Bitcoin Podcast. My name is Alex, and today my guest is Bitcoin Motorist. And I'm really excited about this conversation. We got into a bunch of topics about uh, Bitcoin and its relation to liberty. And I probably talked about it on the podcast. I'm, you know, affiliated with the Arizona Libertarian Party and the Mises Caucus. And, uh, you know, sometimes get frustrated by their lack of uh, interest in Bitcoin, you know, which is okay. But uh, Bitcoin Motorist is doing a great job of getting out into the Liberty Sphere as I'm trying to do and really teaching people about Bitcoin and he did a bunch of great stuff at Porkfest. He's always pretty active there uh, and I really you know, appreciated what he did out there and some of the talks that I listened to online. Hopefully get out to Porkfest, but yeah, I uh, hope you enjoy this conversation. Cool, we're recording. Good to have you on, Patrick. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, so I uh, um, have listened to you a bit in the Dirtbags uh, group. I, I don't really participate a ton, uh, but I like to listen to you guys on Friday nights. And then uh, you did some really cool stuff at Porkfest uh, sure. recently. So uh, I'm excited to talk about that, have you on the podcast. But yeah, so... I'm kind of interested to hear about what what's going on in New Hampshire with the the free state movement and what that's all about. Yeah. Out there? Yeah, it's uh, I'm I guess I'm the right person to ask because I'm part of the free state project. I actually um, I kind of discovered I should say I rediscovered Bitcoin and the free state project at around the same time. I first heard about Bitcoin in 2011. But if you had asked me about it in 2012, I probably wouldn't have said, I don't know what Bitcoin is. So I kind of heard about it in 2011, kind of forgot about it, then rediscovered it uh, in 2013. Same thing with the Free State Project. I kind of heard the word, the Free State Project, sometime back in the day. I'm not sure when. It could have been 2003. It could have been 2004. I'm not sure when I heard it. And then kind of, I didn't really forget about the Free State Project, but I kind of thought that it was just kind of an idea that died. Like, I, I didn't think it went anywhere. And then I rediscovered it in 2013 around the same time that I rediscovered Bitcoin at a Bitcoin conference. So there were some free staters that actually went to a Bitcoin conference. One of the first big Bitcoin conferences was in 2013 in San Jose. I think it was called uh, the Future of Payments Conference. Um, um, so, um, so I went to that conference and I kind of, you know, ran into some free staters and I was like, oh, a free state project. I'm like, yeah, I think I've heard of you guys. You guys, it's that movement to move 20,000 libertarians to Vermont, right? And they were like, no, it's actually New Hampshire. And I'm like, oh, okay, uh, that sounds pretty cool. And then I was, I was talking to them, I'm like, so you moved to New Hampshire for this project? And the guy, it was Ian Freeman I was talking to, I believe. And Ian Freeman was like, yeah, I moved from Florida to New Hampshire 
and I was a little bit surprised again because I had heard of the Free State Project once, like way back in the day. Didn't hear about it again. So as far as I knew, it was just kind of a thought experiment. I didn't know it was an actual project with people were actually moving uh, to a state. Um, and then when I went home from the conference, um, I kind of looked into New Hampshire and I looked into the Free State Project and I, I, everything I read was positive uh, because I think I had this preconceived notion, especially back in the day, that because I heard the word libertarian, I thought that it had something to do with the Libertarian Party. I found out that it actually has nothing to do with the Libertarian Party, which is kind of a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, because you have the Libertarian Party of New Hampshire and you have the Free State Project. And there has been some tension between the two groups, but it uh, looks like the Free State Project won that war. So, <laughs> I mean, uh, Free State Project, for all the criticism that uh, Bitcoiners give the Free State Project, a lot of it is very legitimate. Uh, the people who are really active in the Free State Project are getting shit done here. Uh, one, so one of the reasons why I decided to move to New Hampshire was because there were so many you know, Bitcoiners in the Free State Project. And I was interested in Bitcoin and I had just come, I had just discovered libertarianism really. And, um, uh, and uh, so there was uh, this this uh, ATM company, I think it was called, I don't know if I'm pronouncing a company, it was called Lamassu or something like that. The guys who were running that company, I think they're from Europe, but they, were, they moved to New Hampshire for the Free State Project. Uh, Ian Freeman and Mark Edge, the guys from Free Talk Live, they were huge, huge Bitcoiners. So I'm looking at, you know, other people, people like Derek J. Freeman, um, you know, big into Bitcoin. Um, so it's like a lot of the a lot of the free staters that I was familiar with uh, were, were big time Bitcoiners. So I was excited. I'm like, I want to go hang out with the Bitcoiners and the anarchists over in the Free State Project. So um, uh, but it, it's it's kind of gone a different direction now. There was a little bit of a split, I guess, um, after 2016. <laughs> so. It seems like uh, a lot of the, the, the free staters, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's certainly Bitcoin maximalists who are free staters, and I know a lot of them, uh, but most of them are are these multi-coiners, you know, I don't want to say shit coiners, but, they, but they're multi-coiners, they don't, or they see Bitcoin as, you know, some of them are, are outwardly hostile to Bitcoin, people like Joel Valenzuela, Joel Valenzuela was one of the first uh, free staters I met once I moved here. To New Hampshire, I, I kind of ran into him at a meetup uh, here in the here in the seacoast area of New Hampshire, and uh, I had known him from Twitter. So it was, you know, I, I and this guy at the time, back in 2016, he was he was living unbanked. He was living completely on Bitcoin. So to me, Joel was a hardcore Bitcoiner, and I was actually I actually talked to Joel to try to figure out, um, you know, I was like, what if I wanted to do what you did? I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I could pretty much pay for everything in Bitcoin if I wanted to. I'm like, but the one thing is gas. I'm like, how do you pay for gas with Bitcoin? Because I couldn't figure out a, a way to do it easily. And he kind of told me how he was like, oh, it's pretty easy. You can go, you know, you can go get a, a gift card for Irving Oil. And then Ir there's Irving Oil gas stations here, here in the Northeast. So you can just, you know, use that and you can buy Bitcoin with the, you could buy the Irving Oil card with Bitcoin. So, but then Joel was one of the first people to just immediately lash out and start attacking Bitcoin in, uh, in 2017. Um, you know, maybe it was because of his circumstances, maybe because he was just living 100% on Bitcoin at the time. And for him, you know, to, if he had a bunch of really small transactions, really small UTXOs in his in his wallet, and he wanted to make a make a big payment, he would have to pay a huge fee because all those you know UTXOs would have to be consolidated. So people like Joel were were one of the first to. And now Joel is completely hostile to Bitcoin. If you hear him speak about it, he talks about how it was taken over by Blockstream and things like that. So my goal as part of the Free State Project 
is not just to make New Hampshire the freest state, which is, which we're, we're working on, and we're going to be successful doing that. But my goal is to make sure that Bitcoiners see New Hampshire as, as an option to move to, because this is a great state to live at. Um, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners are talking about Wyoming, um, but, um, you know, I think maybe back in 2013, 2014, a lot of Bitcoiners were talking about New Hampshire. And I, I kind of think that uh, I kind of think that New Hampshire is better than Wyoming, to be honest, <laughs> in a lot of ways, um, uh, you know, especially if you're concerned about having port access. You know, New Hampshire has port access. Uh, Wyoming doesn't. Uh, New Hampshire is, is rural, but it's also close to big cities like Boston. Wyoming is just kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that's my goal. And um, and I'm trying to one of the ways I'm trying to do that is to try to get more Bitcoiners to come up to Porkfest and uh, and talk to um, some of these people who either, you know, they're, they may be gold bugs, you know, people like Tom Woods who may not, you know, understand uh, the, real, the real benefits of Bitcoin and or, you know, people who are, you know, people like Chris Pacey, who's a Bitcoin cash developer and try to counteract, uh, you know, the things that he's saying about Bitcoin, the negative things he's saying about Bitcoin. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it, it when you were talking about the hostility towards Bitcoin, it, it sounds like a lot of that is, you know, kind of the remnants of the block size wars of people that were probably big blockers for the reasons that you stated of wanting to have lower fees on, be able to do smaller transactions like that. Um, uh, and I, I encounter the, those people occasionally as well. It's interesting, but yeah, I mean, you you guys represented Bitcoin well. You Surfer Jim, um, Tone Vase, some other people it had some pretty hard hitters there that did a great job of, I think, counteracting that. Um, and there's, yeah. there's a guy Swan and Alex Fetsky did a great uh, podcast recently uh, on Twitter spaces talking with Angela McArdle. Um, and I think Robbie, the fire Bernstein was, he was there too. Yeah. He was in, he was oh, okay. in, he, he didn't talk, but yeah, kind of going. He was, he was in. The, he was in the audience. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, because Angela, I believe Angela and uh, Robbie were both at Porkfest uh, this year and the year before. Or not? No, sorry, not the year before, but this year they were. Yeah, and I think Angela made a comment. It was either Dave Smith or Angela that made a comment about how annoying Bitcoin maximalists are. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. Um, I mean, look, Angela is uh, is a vegan. She'll she'll run into some you know some some issues with with these hardcore Bitcoin maximalists who are posting pictures of steak all day. If you're a vegan and you you're scrolling through Twitter and you see pictures of steak and burgers and bacon and, and ribs over and over again, you might find find that annoying. So if she said that, you know, I guess I can I, I guess I can kind of understand it. Yeah. But to, to the to the point of um, uh, again, I, I feel like if you listen to that debate, you know with Surfer Jim and uh, and Tone and uh, Chris Pacia and Jeremy Kaufman. By the way, I'm a huge fan of Jeremy Kaufman. As much as I disagree with him on library, as much as I disagree with him on altcoins, Jeremy Kaufman is is a huge benefit to the Free State Project. The fact that he's here, the work that he's doing is incredible. He has basically single, almost single handedly, kind of taken over the, the libertarian. Uh, party of New Hampshire. I don't know all the details. I told you when you when you reached out to me on Twitter, I kind of told you I'm not kind of in the loop on all the Libertarian Party politics. But from what I from what I've been told and from what I've seen, uh, uh, Jeremy Kaufman has done some done some great work. Um, and um, and this is not even including all the legislative wins that uh, uh, 
uh, for liberty that we've had in the Free State Project. But the point I was I was getting at is you can see in that debate, if you watch it, I believe it's up on Tone's channel. Um, you can see in that debate that that these libertarians and some of these OG Bitcoiners, um, they should know better. They should understand Bitcoin. They should understand if you've been in Bitcoin longer than me, if you've been in Bitcoin since 2011, 2012, you should know better than me that Bitcoin is not a company. And they still, there's this urge whenever something new comes along to try to put it in a box of something that we know previously. You know, Bitcoin, what is Bitcoin? We don't know what it is. It's a brand new thing. You know what it is? It's PayPal. That's what Bitcoin is. No, it's not PayPal. It's gold. That's what Bitcoin is. It's like gold. It's like PayPal. It's, you know, so people try to push it into a box to, to try to kind of fit within a paradigm that they can already imagine in their heads. They can't kind of accept that it's this new thing. It's not PayPal. It's not a company. It's not a technology. It's not strictly a protocol. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of a little bit of everything and it's its own thing. Um, and still people look at Bitcoin as a company. I mean, uh, you heard it, you heard it in the debate. A lot of the people who, who, who liked altcoins, they were like, well, don't you guys want free market competition? You guys are monopolists. You only want one, one company. And it's like to try to explain to someone Someone who should know, a libertarian should understand the difference between a monopoly and a standard. So, um, in fact, I think it was, ironically enough, I think it may have been uh, Jeremy Kaufman who kind of pointed this out to me. Um, Jeremy Kaufman, who's the guy from, from Library Token. Um, Jeremy Kaufman was like, was like, was like, yeah, listen, if, if you have a, a company that is making nuts and you have a different company that's making bolts, they're all they're both going to be on the same standard. You don't want to go into the hardware store and, and and buy nuts and bolts that don't fit each other. It doesn't matter that they're, you know, they don't have to be made by the same company. So this is not a monopoly. This is a standard that much, many different companies follow. So that's the same thing with Bitcoin. There's lots of different companies that are that are involved in Bitcoin, but they all kind of follow the same standard. They follow the same protocol. If they're running a node, they they enforce the consensus rule. So this is the kind of I think the main, main point that if I think if People like Michael Malice and Dave Smith, if they can understand this one thing, that we're not talking about Bitcoin as a company. If you can understand that it's not a company, it's just a protocol, just like the internet. I think that that would go a long way. And I, I feel like this this point hasn't been stressed enough. It hasn't been, uh, been, been, been hit enough. I think we make a lot of arguments like money wants to be one thing, which is true. Because if you talk to these guys that say we should have competing currencies, and you say, well, what's you know what what uh, what what is money? They'll say the money is the most saleable um, uh, good or commodity. That's what they'll say. And I'll say, what did you say? Most most means implies that there's going to be one. And when you when you kind of catch them on that, they're like, oh yeah, but I mean, you know, we need you know you need one money to pay and one money to save. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, you want money to be universally used for everything. That's the ideal money anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think. Uh, the idea of competing currencies is entirely wrong. It's just suggesting that these altcoins have any sort of competition with Bitcoin, I think is misguided. Um, because when we look down the list of all of them, the majority of them are rather silly, or actually all of them are rather silly. I can't think of any that are, you know, really legitimate. So when we look at competition, I think we're watching the competition of fiat currencies and Bitcoin right now. And right. It's very important to understand what you're competing on. You're competing on the standard. So when you say competing currencies, sure, we, well, let's have competing currencies if you want to bring up your altcoin and put it up against Bitcoin. But just understand that there is going to be one winner. It's going to be 
Bitcoin, or if it's not Bitcoin, it's probably not going to be your altcoin. It'll probably be something else that we can't conceive of right now. It's not going. Um, here's the thing. It's like I, I think it's okay to say that at some point Bitcoin will be replaced by something better. At some point in the future, it will be. Um, but it's not going to look like anything that's out today. It's not going to look like Bitcoin. It's gonna it's gonna use technology that we can't conceive of right now. It's gonna use. Uh, and when I say that, people say quantum computers. I'm like, no. Because we already kind of can think of quantum computers. It's going to be something that nobody expected, kind of like comparing going from gold to Bitcoin. You know, if you were, if you were a gold bug 200 years ago, you could never have conceived of, of Bitcoin coming along. So I think it's possible that at some point in the future, probably in the far future, probably hundreds of years in the future, there will be something that comes along that is better than Bitcoin that might replace the Bitcoin standard. Uh, but it's, again, it's not going to be one of these, uh, these, these scammy, you know, Companies, that's basically the best word to put them. They're companies. They're not really decentralized protocols. They have a guy in charge. You know, uh, I think uh, during the debate, Surfer Jim brought up that uh, Jeremy had been sued for, you know, for uh, for some some something having to do with library. And uh, it's like, yeah, you can't sue. You can't sue Bitcoin. You know, it's like uh, um, uh, so. So the, the idea is that, yes, there there is competition among the standard. But once the standard is chosen, that's the standard. So you're talking about VHS and Betamax. Once VHS won, that's it. Betamax went away. I mean, my sister made the unfortunate mistake of buying an HD DVD when they first came out. She thought that was going to be the standard, but no, Blu-ray uh, kind of uh, was got more popular for whatever reason. No one really knows for sure why, but Blu-ray kind of won that war. So she had this HD DVD player. She had very few movies she could buy for it because people stopped making, you know, HD DVD uh, movies. Like, uh, like I think when Batman, uh, no, not Batman, when Dark Knight Rises came out, I don't think they even made an HD DVD version of it. So she wanted that movie, but she was out of luck. So, so that's what it is. It's a format war. And and it's not an it's not Coke and Pepsi. It's VHS or Betamax. If you if you if you remember that uh, that reference, uh, Alex, that may be before your time. It is, yeah. I I do understand the the reference because it's referenced so much. But yeah, yeah. yeah you used to go into uh, video stores back when those were a thing. Not even blockbusters, like these small corner shop video stores that never had the right selection, mm-hmm. and they would have a Betamax section. So you would see like a really cool movie that you wanted to rent. And it's like, oh, I can't believe they have it in stock. And you go grab it and they're like, oh, it's Betamax, you know, crap. You know, they had to put it back because everyone had VHS. No one had Betamax. That's why the movie was available in the beta section. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're not really a fan of CBDCs. And I think, you know, when I look at CBDCs, that's what I think Bitcoin is competing against and what we're trying to prevent at all costs. Um could you outline a little bit about what CBDCs are and what they might look like in the future? Sure, and I think uh, it's a good. I think it's a good tactic to bring up CBDCs um, when people say, you know, you should have an open mind. You should have free currency competition among. I'm like, okay, so so it's okay if I use a CBDC. A lot of these are anarchists. They hate CBDCs just like as much as you and I do. Um, but you know, when you bring up, okay, then why can't I just use a CBDC? Then you know, they may, they may kind of understand why you're not interested in their centralized, you know, altcoin. But um, yeah, so a CBDC just kind of, um, you know, there have been lots of theories about it, um, but I feel like it's possible that the CBDCs could be used as a way to 
to do some sort of a UBI or a STEMI where where you're directly getting your your stimulus or whatever onto onto an app, you know, a government app on your phone, something like that, so that you don't have to go through a banking system, you don't have to wait for a direct deposit or something like that. The, the government could just press a couple of buttons and just immediately, um, you know, dump you know stimulus money right into your right into your government app on your phone, and and that way they could also kind of monitor you and they could restrict where you could use it. Like if you try to use it to buy Bitcoin. Um, you know, they won't let you, you can only use it in certain stores or something like that. So if you want to buy Bitcoin with that, with your stimmies, they, they will, you know, you'll have to jump through a bunch of hoops. Like you have to go buy a gift card and then sell the gift card. And then, you know, so you have to do something weird to try to buy Bitcoin with it or to try to invest it in the stock market, buy some of these meme stocks on, on Robinhood, whatever it is you want to do with it. Um, so I just feel like it's, it's kind of, it kind of misses the point of Bitcoin the same way the altcoins do. The same criticism that I'm going to make on CBDCs is the same criticism that I'll make, I'm going to make on almost every altcoin um, is that it's just, it's a centralized system. Um, it, it may LARP some Bitcoin technology. You know, they'll say they'll have the word crypto in there somewhere, but it's not really, um, you know, it's not really a blockchain. It's going to be a centralized database that controls how much each person has. And that kind of misses the whole point of Bitcoin. It's like, you know, a horseless carriage, um, and then saying, well, wouldn't it be cool if I, you know what, I'm going to get a horseless carriage, but I'm going to, I'm going to get a horse with it too, you know, so I can have like a backup system or something like that. You know, that's kind of what it is. It's like putting a horse in front of a horseless carriage. Um, that's kind of what CBDCs are, are. but again, 90% of the criticisms of CBDCs you can make on, uh, on, on these altcoins. They're centralized. They're not really, you know, distributed networks. Um, no one's running a node. You only have, you know, I don't know, half a dozen people running an Ethereum node, if that, no one knows for sure how many people are running an Ethereum node. There may not even be half a dozen, there may be less than that. Um, so, so yeah, it's, um, and, and another thing to consider is that a lot of times people think of, um, um, I've heard this argument, I think it may have been Arthur Hayes that made it. Uh, I'm not really sure. I may have read a blog from Arthur Hayes, but I, I read it somewhere where um, they said that um, Bitcoin is, is not a threat to uh, uh, to the banking system, uh, as much as we say, you know, f the banks here, but it's not really gonna make banks go away. It's a threat to central banking, but it's not a threat to say, you know, ordinary deposit banking or whatever commercial banking. Um, and the it, the opposite is true of CBDCs. CBDCs would be a threat to banks. They would help the central bank, but they would be a huge threat to the banks if the government can cut out the middleman. If the government can stimulate the economy without going through the banks, currently the Federal Reserve, when it quote unquote prints money, what it's doing is it's buying uh, bonds uh, uh, on the uh, on the on the on the open market operations, and and basically that money is going into the banks. That's how it's quote unquote printing money. Um, but if they, if the government can print money without going through the banking system, if they can send it directly to the consumer. Um, if the consumer doesn't have to have a bank account to go to walk, to go shop at Walmart or Target, if they could just use that app that has the government crypto on it, um, then um, that might be a big threat to the banks. So it, it's funny, the banks might actually be the ones fighting against CBDCs. So, but we'll see. Um, some people are saying that's hogwash, that the banks will be on board. But, you know, uh, who knows? It's kind of a, an interesting, uh, um, an interesting little wrinkle to look at how it may, it, it may be that, uh, uh, Bitcoin saves the banks. Um, one, there was one other point that I wanted to make. Um, I've heard a lot of libertarians bring up free banking. 
every time I try to say that there's only going to be one currency, they always bring up the free banking system. I think Jeremy Kaufman actually brought up free banking during the debate. Here's the thing. I think free banking is great. What free bank to me, what free, my understanding of free banking is, is you know, maybe I have an incorrect, but my understanding is, is that the banks um, minted their own or, or uh, printed their own uh, notes. Each bank, I think this was in the 19th century in America, um, and I think maybe England had the same kind of the same thing. Each bank printed their own currency, and um, the currency was you could be you could use it everywhere because they would trust the the bank that it came from. So each bank had their own currency. Um, so they say, oh, then why can't we have that? We'll have each you know each company printing their own crypto. I'm like, you don't understand. It's not the same thing. The banks may have minted their own, may have printed their own notes, but they are all following the same standard. They were following the gold standard. So if you if you think free banking is coming in the future, it's going to be on a similar standard. It's going to be, you know, we have Bitcoin in our bank and we're issuing, you know, 10 Satoshi notes or whatever that you can go out and use and spend easily so you don't have to worry about transaction fees. So that's what it's going to be. If we, if we do go back to a free banking standard, which we may, and I think that would actually be a cool thing. Um, is they're all all the banks are going to be on one standard. Each bank, if if some bank comes up and prints their own token out of nowhere, and and that's not going to be accepted anywhere. I'd rather use the bank's notes that is backed by Bitcoin rather than some some weird crypto no one's ever heard of. So, uh, free banking is not an objection uh, to a Bitcoin standard uh, to to Bitcoin being the universal money. Um, it's actually um, you're missing the point if you think free banking means that each bank printed their own you know, token and out of nothing. That's not what happened. Yeah. Yeah. A lot to talk about that. Um, so like on the topic of CBDCs in the U.S., I think they're uh, somewhat unlikely in the same way that we're watching China uh, go through with their own CBDC for the reasons that you stated. I don't think, you know, Wells Fargo and JP Morgan are going to be very happy with that. So it'll be really interesting to see what they roll out here. Um, and yeah, on the topic of free banking, I just struggle to see in the world today having all of these localized currencies in the in the way that many people suggest because it's so inconvenient. Like if I'm only able to spend a currency in one region and I have to switch in and out of that currency to go, you know, a state over or a town over, or, um, you know, even into another country buy things internationally, it it's really really inconvenient. I think localized currencies too are you know pretty easy to, to co-opt um so there might be a future for it uh but i, I struggle to see that as like a real real solid solution uh, that's a, yeah that's a very good objection because um you know during the free banking era travel wasn't really you know you stayed kind of in your local region so if everybody in the town knew the local bank and they trusted the local bank because it was the big bank in town you could use those funds within that town but you know, with railroads and everything, and you know, then eventually air travel, where, where you can kind of move move around. Um, you know, maybe free banking was kind of less appropriate then, just because you know, hey, I don't know this this bank in you know, from Ames, Iowa. You know, <laughs> you know, never heard of them. You know, so um, so that that's actually a pretty good point. I have made that point too. But again, I think that uh, it's possible that we can go to that if if all the banks are on the same standard, if or you know, if they're on a similar standard, then. Um, then I think it would be fine as, you know, you would kind of just, just like the same way you would accept a check, you know, from, from a bank, maybe even, even if you've never heard of the bank, you might accept a check from it and uh, maybe do the same thing with, uh, with notes. But yeah, that's a very good objection. I've actually thought about that, Alex, as well. 
Yeah, I was at a conference recently. It wasn't Bitcoin related, but one of the speakers had that suggestion. And I just, you know, the only thing I could think of was the Africa and the, I think they're called the Agribeads or something like that. And we've just watched over and over as local populations have been manipulated and destroyed by, you know, bigger forces coming in and totally messing with the currency. And so I think if that experiment happens, it's just, it's not going to work well. <laughs> so yeah, that's a very important point. And I still, to this day, I refer people to Robert Breedlove's great article, Masters and Slaves of Money. Um, you know, Robert Breedlove, for all the controversy he's had lately, he's blocked me, by the way, on Twitter. So he blocked me on Twitter. I don't even think I said anything bad to him. Um, you know, I kind of, not, at least nothing worse than what everybody else was saying. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but, but just because Robert Breedlove did something that we find objectionable doesn't mean that his words from, especially from before are not valid. He, I would still refer people to, to Robert Breedlove's article and masters and slaves of money is a very good point. Cause when you, when you hear people saying, look, what do you care? If I want to use this token, if I want to use that token, it's, you know, it's up to me. It's what, you know, it's free market, bro. Whatever I want to do. If I find value in dash, let me use dash. I'm like, you know, you're right. I, I, I honestly, I don't care. Um, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't at least point out that you're going to get screwed um, because money is going to go towards one money wants to be one thing. Um, and, and if you end up using the money that is unsound, you're going to end up working for the people who are using the sound money. That's what's going to happen is you're going to be, you know, uh, you're, you're going to be, you know, serving the, the people who are using the, the good money. That's what ended up happening in Africa. They called those beads, those, um, those glass beads, they, they eventually called them slave beads because uh, they could make them so cheaply in Europe. They were expensive to make and, and scarce in, uh, in Africa, but in Europe, they've, you know, they figured out we could make these pretty easily and they could come in and because of the, you know, the Cantillon effect, we hear that over and over again, how, how unfair it is. When you could print money, the people who are close to the money printer are actually less affected by the money printing than the people on the bottom of the the, the food chain. So, so the people who got the glass beads first, they, you know, they benefited from, from the extra money, but then as they kind of went through the economy, uh, these people ended up being enslaved by the people who had the, the harder money, the gold, you don't want to end up with, with the, with the bad money. You don't want to be holding uh, Bitcoin cash or dash when, when the, when the music stops, you want to have the hardest, hardest money ever conceived. Yeah. Yeah, super interesting. Um, this might be kind of like a dumb segue, but uh, would that potentially be possible with Bitcoin? Uh, so like we look at El Salvador right now where um, uh, money means like the dollar or a few dollars means something different than you know a few dollars in the United States uh, because there's just such a large stratification of wealth between here and there. Um, if Bitcoiners go to El Salvador with large amounts of Bitcoin and start spending in the economy and spread it out, could it be a similar effect? Um, or would it be uh, because it is like a global traded currency that it won't um, cause some sort of inflation, you know, in the prices of goods and services there? Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. I mean, um, I think that the reason why um, Bukele 
one of the reasons why Bukele um, made Bitcoin legal tender was because he wanted tourism from Bitcoiners. He's like, there are these guys, they're Bitcoiners, you know, they live in America or Europe and they, you know, they have money. They like to go on vacations. They like to go to Mexico. Why don't they come to El Salvador instead, you know? So I think that his idea was it'll attract um, more Bitcoiners to come uh, to come visit El Salvador and kind of help the economy. I don't really see it as the same thing. Um, I mean, it, it's one thing if if the if the locals in El Salvador if they don't really like you know that Bitcoin is legal tender, and they convert you know they convert the the sats you know to uh, uh, to dollars you know maybe you can make that argument. But I think that I think that if if enough Bitcoiners go down there. And if we go to enough places and we spend enough sats, the cool thing about the law is because these guys can now spend their sats in a lot of places um, because the government's making it legal tender is they don't have to convert it to, uh, to, to back to fiat. They can just keep the sats, which is kind of the benefit. And also um, I, a good uh, a friend of mine, Peter St. Ange, who was at um, who was at Porkfest? He was one of the speakers at Porkfest, and he was one of the guys that was hanging out with us at the Bitcoin Lounge. You know, um, he um, was making the point that that remittances are actually as big an industry, percentage-wise, in El Salvador as oil is in in Saudi Arabia, which is mind blowing. That you know, something like twenty or whatever it is, twenty or thirty percent of their economy goes to fees for remittances. So if they're using um, strike or if they're using some maybe not strike but let's say strike or if they're using some some service that sends lightning payments for remittances at a fraction of the cost and the people in El Salvador who are receiving that lightning if they don't have to convert it to fiat to spend if they can actually spend it as sats um, that's a benefit to them that's one of the reasons why they made it legal tender is so that these guys what's the point if you if you send the if you send the the transaction if you send the remittance and it's super cheap, but then there's a huge conversion cost to convert it back to fiat before they could spend it, then you didn't really save that much money. Okay, so you got hit. You didn't get hit on, on the transfer, but you got hit when you changed it to back to fiat. So in order to, to help that, that's one of the reasons why they had the legal tender is these guys can actually uh, you know, not have to convert back to fiat and save, and save on conversion costs. Uh, so, so that's kind of it. So if you look at it that way, it kind of makes sense what El Salvador did. We, we have a lot of, you know, purist libertarians, you know, even people who should know better people like, um, uh, Ben Prentice, but they're, they're falling for this, uh, this FUD from people like George Selgin and Steve Hankey. Um, these guys are not friends of Bitcoin. You know, Steve Hankey definitely is not a friend of Bitcoin and George Selgin, he may say he likes Bitcoin, but his, all his rhetoric is anti-Bitcoin. So just cause someone says, no, I like Bitcoin, but it sucks for this, you know, this these three or four reasons. That's what George Selgin is doing. So, uh, and I think a lot of Bitcoiners are kind of falling prey to this, uh, you know, libertarian purist rhetoric of, well, we don't like, uh, we don't like uh, legal tender laws. You know, uh, you know, Ron Paul said it in Bitcoin Miami. At least I was told. I didn't hear him say it, but from what I heard, Ron Paul said that legal tender laws are bad, or we should get rid of legal tender. Sure, let's get rid of legal tender laws. Let's start in the U.S. Let's not start in El Salvador. If we're going to get rid of legal tender laws, yeah, I'm, I'm on board. Uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to start uh, in in uh, in El Salvador. So, uh, um, yeah, and I, I, I maybe in the last eight years that I've been in Bitcoin and libertarianism, I've maybe heard 
about legal tender three times. You know? So suddenly now it's a big topic, whereas before nobody really cared one way or the other. But now, now that Bitcoin's accepted, oh no, now we got to look at legal tender laws. Now it's a problem. But I think it's, it's going to be a huge benefit to, um, uh, to the El Salvadoran people. I don't see it as being something that they may, some of them may be nervous and apprehensive about it, but the way we solve that is not by, you know, criticizing the law, but by going there and actually going to, to see the vendors and talking to them and seeing what we could do to help them. If, if, there's, if they're nervous about Bitcoin and they need, they need help, they need education, um, you know, or, you know, they need whatever, you know, hardware wallets, although, you know, that's kind of a controversial topic in and of itself. Um, you know, we can, we can try to help them and figure this stuff out, help them with infrastructure, you know, do, do what, do what, you know, people do, they go over there and they go and they see the vendors and they go to Bitcoin beach or they go to you know, wherever the, the place is. I think it begins with a Z. I don't know how to pronounce it. Don't do what, what Brock did. Don't go for, you know, for a day, have a photo op with some politicians and then not even go out and meet the people. You know, that was just embarrassing. Uh, I think, I think Brock should be embarrassed to show his face at any Bitcoin event, but then, you know, I think he, he's not, uh, um, I think he's incapable of, of being uh, humiliated at this point. Yeah, I was going to bring up Brock too. That was go down for an Instagram picture and leave. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah the legal tender law are funny. I, I actually asked Joe Jorgensen. I went to one of her um, campaign rallies and asked her about uh, inflation, you know, and how we end the Fed. And that was one of the things she, she should, she suggested was repealing, uh, legal tender laws. And she says, you should be able to use whatever type of money you want to, even if it's chickens. And I just shook my head of like how weak and silly that, that argument was. Um, Cause I thought I gave her a softball, uh, but I didn't really know what her platform was or, you know, about her politics. I was just curious because uh, I had these like assumptions of what the libertarian party was. And I didn't realize that it was as messy as you kind of, alluded to earlier but yeah i i am totally with you i think like as you know libertarian minded people we've seen how dangerous it is to go into other countries and you know meddle in their politics and to um you know sit on our little uh high horse in the u.s and look down at whether it was you know bush saying uh we can't you know send over contraception to uh africa and then everybody got AIDS as a result of it, or, you know, just, you know, silly, silly things like that. But I, I like how you outline, you know, with some context, the perspective of, of where the president is coming from. And I think this is such a huge, huge step for a country like that, because they've been living under the dollars tyranny. And I, I'm a huge fan of Steve Hankey. He provides me a lot of amusement with his awful takes. Um, because one of the things he was suggesting, you know, with Venezuela is that they go on a dollar standard. You know, that's his solution, uh, which is just absolutely bonkers to me. You know, when we've seen how destructive that is for countries like, and, and you know, when you look at how destructive that's been for El Salvador, you know, specifically with Western, essentially being entirely relying on Western Union and, and what these people have to go through to get money. It's just, it, it's infuriating to me. So I'm totally yeah. with you. I'm not necessarily against um, foreign countries uh, going on a dollar standard. Um, honestly, the people of Venezuela would benefit if they were on a dollar standard compared to their compared to they're basically. I think the dollar might be like, if not the second, like the third or fourth most used currency in Venezuela. 
Uh, Bitcoin is in there too. I think uh, I think the guy's name was Larry White. He was making he was debating John Vallis at Porkfest. Um, he said that uh, Bitcoin is the fifth most used currency in Venezuela, after like the dollar, the euro, the boulevard, and you know a few others, and after the you know the Colombian currency or whatever. And it's like, okay, if Bitcoin is the fifth most used currency in Venezuela, I don't see that's that's not an argument against Bitcoin. That's actually. So he was using it as say, as saying that uh, that it was an argument against Bitcoin, but I don't necessarily think that it's bad for countries to uh, to dollarize. So they, and the reason why El Salvador went off of their own um, national currency and just started using the the U.S. dollar as their national currency, I believe, is just so that they could just offload their monetary policy. So they just didn't have to think about it anymore. They didn't have to worry about you know if they're printing too much, printing too little. They just you know just everyone just used the dollar. So it was kind of easier for them to govern. So I don't necessarily think that Hanke is wrong on that, but he is a bit of a hypocrite, isn't he? Because he says that they should go on a dollar standard, but he doesn't want them to go on a Bitcoin standard. Um, uh, what's the difference? I mean, Bitcoin is 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 like the dollar, except it's it's a little harder. We, you know, we like to criticize the dollar here, you know, in, in the Bitcoin and libertarian community, but the dollar is still better than you know, 99% of other national currencies out there, you know, the dollar is better than, um, you know, the Mexican peso, for example. Um, I'd rather, I'd rather have U.S. dollar, if I was going to be paid in a national currency, not Bitcoin, it would, it would probably be U.S. dollars. So uh, it is better for some of these, like, uh, you know, places like Argentina, they kind of destroy their their national currency every 20 to 30 years. And I think places like El Salvador, they were tired of doing that. They were tired of kind of destroying their own native national currency every every few decades and, and you know, starting over. Eventually they're like, you know what? We're just gonna use dollars. Um, and um, yeah, and I think a do do it's not that surprising that a dollarized country was the first to, to make uh, Bitcoin um, they're, uh, you know, a legal tender. And I think uh, other South American countries and Central American countries uh, might follow suit. I've been hearing things about Paraguay. So that might be interesting to see what happens there, because I believe Paraguay also is a dollarized country, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I guess when I say that, I mean it in like in the context of what it brings to the country with all the meddling politics and the IMF and yeah, but the, you take a really practical approach. Um, and it makes a yeah. lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the IMF, um, you know, they um, weren't too happy about uh, about El Salvador making uh, uh, Bitcoin their legal uh, one of their legal tenders. And it's uh, it's funny because they said it was for environmental reasons, which is just patently absurd. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, first of all, the IMF. When 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 were they concerned about the environment? When were they when they become an environmental agency? Suddenly now they're an environmental expert now. When they when they're talking about Bitcoin, um, and uh, and and it's like uh, it's like yeah, we the thing about a lot of libertarians and Bitcoiners, a lot of us are pessimists. I mean not I mean Bitcoiners, we all have hope, but we're pessimists. We always assume that the government's going to do something bad. They're going to do something wrong. We never even stop to consider that governments may actually want Bitcoin. They may actually welcome Bitcoiners. We want Bitcoiners to come here. We want to go on a Bitcoin standard. We never actually stopped to consider that. We always thought that, oh, what's the government going to do to shut us down? The government will never allow Bitcoin to be used as money. I heard this argument maybe a week before 
the announcement, the government will never allow Bitcoin to be used as money. And all of a sudden, the government mandated <laughs> that, that, uh, that not, not just, you know, BART, no, not just we're okay with it. They mandated that you must be, you must accept Bitcoin <laughs> as long as you have the, uh, you have the facilities to do so. <laughs> I think it was just comical. I mean, we were having arguments a week before, uh, before Miami with uh, people saying that, uh, oh, the government's not going to let Bitcoin be used as money. And it's just so comical that, you know, no one saw this coming. You know, even the most, uh, you know, even the smartest economists, the most optimistic Bitcoiners didn't see this coming. Yeah, I think one of the things that I find really interesting right now is I think a lot of people had expectations that the price would be a lot higher and that the adoption that we're seeing wouldn't be as drastic as what's happening right now. I think MicroStrategy was a huge surprise to people and El Salvador is definitely a huge surprise. I mean... The thing that blows my mind about El Salvador is I had Mike Peterson on my podcast two or three months before uh, that announcement came out, and there was no discussion. I asked him specifically about the local government and their viewpoint on it, and he said that he was trying to meet with the president or you know some higher uh, government officials to discuss Bitcoin and it wasn't really on their radar. It's just amazing how quickly that happened. Blows my mind. Yeah, that is. Um, so I'm not too familiar with the name you just mentioned. Is that one of the guys from Bitcoin Beach? Yeah, he started Bitcoin Beach. Yeah. Okay, that, that makes sense. I figured it must have been him, but I just hadn't heard the name before. But yeah, that is pretty interesting. Um, but again, maybe he planted the seed. If enough, you know, it, when you hear, like for me, I heard about Bitcoin in 2011 and uh, I kind of dismissed it and uh, thought it was a stupid scam. And then uh, I heard, when I heard about it the second time, I was, you know, I was a little bit more open to it um, in 2013. It was funny because I, I thought I was hearing it for the first time, but it was actually the second time I'd heard about it. <laughs> yeah. Same thing with Michael Saylor. You know, we, we talked to people, um, you know, there's maybe a half a dozen people who claim that they orange-pilled my, I'm the one who orange-pilled Michael Saylor. I'm the one who told Michael Saylor about Bitcoin because they talked to Michael Saylor about Bitcoin at some point in the past. Um, and, but then at some point he did get orange-pilled, but who knows who it was? Maybe, was it one of the guys that, that says that they, they, they're the ones who, who orange-pilled it or did he just figure it out on his own because he saw what was happening because of all the money printing and, um, you know, after COVID that's what he says. If you ask him, he says that he kind of got into Bitcoin, I believe, uh, after all the money printing. That's kind of when, when he kind of saw the uh, uh, the argument in favor of Bitcoin, whereas he, before he didn't really see it. Yeah, it's really interesting to get into, you know, some of his discussion of why Bitcoin clicked for him with all the money that he lost in um, Argentina with the currency devaluations and the capital controls that they placed. I mean, his story, he had a story where... He was talking about wanting to buy a yacht and sail it to um, Miami as a way to get his money out of the country. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember hearing this story. I don't remember where it was in one of his, you know, one of his three million podcasts, but I do remember hearing the story where he, he was trying to get the the funds out and he just couldn't, he couldn't do it. It was, yeah. I, I at first I, I was like, well, I don't remember him talking about this, but then when you talk about the yacht, now I, now it's coming back to me. He did mention that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like you have to jump through all these hoops just to just to use your money, and we're okay with it. We're thinking, well, yeah, because it's government property. You know, I I remember, um, you know, back before the days of Bitcoin, I was, uh, you know, I was just a regular. I wasn't even libertarian. I was just a regular conservative, and I would argue with the with the leftists at work and my coworkers, 
you know, about how, hey, when you make money, it's your money. So why should the government take, you know, however many percent of it? And then these leftists would argue back, no, no, the government is 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 who makes the money. They they they're the ones who print the money. So it's government property. They just let you keep some of it, you know. And that's kind of this mindset we have is we just think of uh, money as this government good, and we don't think of it as you know, no, this is mine. If I'm if I work for someone and they pay me five hundred dollars a week, I should be able to take home five hundred dollars a week. I shouldn't have to, uh, you know, uh, look and say, well, how much am I actually keeping? Three hundred eighty-seven dollars. Okay, I guess that's all right. I guess that's fair. And we kind of we're beaten to accept this as as being as being fair that the fact that you know your productivity is being stolen uh, by people who are using it. Uh, they they say they're using it for good, but they're using it for a lot of nefarious things too. Yeah, and we don't have a choice of how they use it, I think, ultimately, is uh, what's really important. I mean, that's something, you know, people talk about how Bitcoin really brings back property rights. I think that's a really important discussion to have. Uh, and a lot of people don't think about how they don't really have property, how they're... I, I see buying a house today as essentially leasing it uh, land from the government because we have to pay... Uh, taxes, property taxes, and then, you know, go through all of these zoning laws to get permission to build a shed that's bigger than however uh, big it is and, you know, to do all of these silly things. And Bitcoin is one of those places that, you know, you can actually own something. And I think that's huge. Right. You know, ostensibly, a lot of those uh, regulations that as property owners, as libertarians, we may not like, they're actually done to protect um, uh, previous property owners. So, so you hear a leftist complain about saying uh, inequality, you know, how, you know, housing is unaffordable and, you know, in certain big cities like San Francisco or Boston or someplace like that. Uh, but then, then they won't acknowledge the fact that there's all this red tape. If you want to build a, you know, an apartment complex, you, it's almost impossible to do so. You have to jump through so many hoops um, or you have to pay off, you have to grease the right palms, you have to pay off the right politicians before they'll, you know, they'll okay it. Um, and so, so, you know, when we say, you know, we have all these regulations on, on how, what you can build on your own property and stuff like that, it's actually a lot of that isn't really, it's done to protect other property owners. They don't want you to build more property because it's going to devalue their property. You know, if there's fewer buildings, the, the existing buildings are actually worth more. So it's a very, very, very um, anti-working class, anti-poor uh, um, strategy that the left is going down. This is why I think um, not to, not to, I'm not really a fan of the conservatives either uh, because they're also idiots, but, uh, uh, but, but the left I think is going to be losing this, this whole working class argument. I think they're more and more, I think it's interesting because I think in, in either the next presidential election or maybe the one after, um, it's just going to be clear at that point that um, the Republicans are going to be kind of catering to the poor, kind of these rural, rural, you know, small town people. Uh, and, uh, and the left is kind of going to be catering to, you know, rich people that live on the coasts. And, uh, uh, and I think that it's kind of going, in, it's been going in that direction for a while. And before it was about Democrats are for the poor. Uh, but now it's going to be about Republicans are a populist because when you say populist, that kind of has a negative connotation, whereas saying you're for the poor, it has a positive connotation. So that's that's what the narrative is gonna is gonna, is gonna be. But uh, but yeah, I think uh, I, I I hate that I brought up politics. I I, I hate that I kind of took us off topic. <laughs> we can get back to Bitcoin if you want, Alex. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it's okay. I, I think um, I, I've been trying to embrace this idea of being post-political as much as possible. Uh, but I think it is interesting to, you know, be aware of what's happening in the politics uh, to some degree, you know, and to see the silliness of it. Uh, it it's like the same reason why I um, have recently been looking into shit coins so I can um, explain why it's wrong to, or, or why they're not legitimate to people, you know, that are interested in them and have an educated discussion about it. But yeah, I mean, this idea of poverty management that the left uh, promotes and you know a lot of the right does too is just so insane because nobody has ever built any sort of serious wealth on a welfare check you know it's like we're gonna make you poor um and keep you or not necessarily make you poor but keep you poor and manage it and i think that's you know such an evil thing that bitcoin really frees people from um because there's so many different you know ways to go about it like with what fold's doing you know, I have this discussion with a lot of, you know, no coiners that claim that they don't have money for Bitcoin. It's like you buy things, just stack sats with fold, you know, or, or whatever, you know, else there's a bunch of services out there that you can do stuff like that. I think that's, that's incredible for somebody to build some semblance of savings because that's a major issue that we have in our country. Nobody has any money um, set aside in case something bad happens. It's all credit cards and, you know, craziness. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I think that what we're going to be seeing is that um, Bitcoin lowers your time preference. So I think Bitcoiners kind of, it changes you. It, it, it does change you being a Bitcoiner. You kind of are, have more of a long-term mindset. You kind of think saving is cool now, where before you may have thought of saving as just being a chore. Now it's like, you know, we, when we, when we stack sets, it's like, oh, I just bought a million, you know, sets, you know, and just <laughs> take a screenshot of it and put it on Twitter. I do that. Yeah. I'm one of those idiots that does that. But uh, I mean, it's just kind of cool to, to do, uh, to, to kind of make saving cool. Cause before you talk to people about saving and they're like, they're like, well, yeah, um, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna have any money in my bank account when I die. I'm gonna have my bank account is gonna be empty when I die. I just want to make sure that I spend everything that I that I got now. Uh, Bitcoiners are kind of <clears throat> talking about intergenerational wealth and things like that. It's uh, we're not we're not thinking about at what price we're gonna cash out. That's another thing that separates um, Bitcoiners from altcoiners. And and I I do like to say altcoiners, not shitcoiners, because I feel like. Um, when I say shitcoiners, a lot of shitcoiners are like, well, he's not talking about me because I'm not a shitcoiner. But if I say altcoiner, then then a lot of you know altcoiners are like, what does he mean altcoiner? Does he think Cardano is an altcoin? Because because someone might be into you know some some shitcoin, but when I say shitcoin, like, well, he's not talking about you know X Y Z shitcoin. Uh, he's talking about you know that other shitcoin. So I, I like to say altcoiners. Um, I think I, I heard Dieter kind of say the same thing on Twitter, um, but. Um, but but the, but the point is is that a lot of these altcoiners they're kind of into following some leader. They want to hear what some billionaire or what some celebrity says. You know, they're waiting for a next celebrity pump, or they're waiting for you know Lindsay Lohan to endorse their you know their altcoin and some some silly thing like that. And I feel like Bitcoin is the true anarchist money. I mean, look, Steve Wozniak came out a couple of days ago or yesterday or whenever said something good about Bitcoin, but. So what? We don't care. It's not like, you know, it's like, cool. Yeah, we're, we're happy Steve Wozniak said something positive about Bitcoin. But I think 
I think some Bitcoiners were like, well, have you fucking bought any? Don't just say something positive and go out and buy some. That's that, you know, so we don't really care who you are. We don't care if you're Elon Musk. We don't care if you're the richest man in the world. We don't care if you're the biggest movie star. If you say something stupid about Bitcoin, we're going to tell you to have fun staying poor. And we just don't care. We don't care about offending people. Um, and, you know, we're, we're okay with calling, um, you know, people like Mark Cuban idiots because they are idiots. And we're okay with just pointing out the obvious. Um, whereas feel like a lot of uh, altcoiners are like, oh, you know, we're going to, you know, it's like, I think so-and-so is going to come out in favor of, you know, this one altcoin. And it, I think it's just, uh, it's just hilarious. So if you want to be an anarchist, get the anarchist money. The anarchist money is not the money that's ruled by an anarchist. The anarchist money is the money that has no ruler. Uh, and this is kind of brings it back to the libertarians. A lot of libertarians went the, the Bitcoin cash route because they're like, well, I, I like Roger. I trust Roger. Roger's an anarchist. I'm an anarchist. I should follow what Roger says. I'm like, no, if you're following an anarchist, you're not an anarchist. You know, um, Bitcoin is the only anarchist money because we have no leader and we don't care about leaders. And we'll tell if tomorrow Michael Saylor says something stupid about Bitcoin, we'll tell him to have fun staying poor too. And he fully knows this. He kind of understands this. Um, uh, but, you know, Jack Dorsey, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Jack Dorsey. A lot of Bitcoiners don't like Jack Dorsey, but I like Jack Dorsey. But he's just... I think he's the way he's he's going about the NFT stuff. He's just wrong. He's just wrong on it. And uh, and uh, and you know, you know, sure, it's great to have somebody like him in the space that supports Bitcoin. But we also don't really care. Bitcoin will be fine either way. You know, we're not uh, you know worshiping any so-called leaders in Bitcoin. Yeah, I love that about Bitcoin. And, and you uh, had a pretty skeptical take on Elon in 2019. So you were pretty ahead of the curve on that one. I think a lot of us uh, fell for it and got overly excited about him. I, I definitely am learning better uh, pretty quickly not to uh, get excited about these people that are, yeah. And I saw the Steve yeah. Watson. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Elon Musk, uh, you know, I'll have to credit, uh, I'll credit Thunderfoot and Thunderfoot is no, He's no libertarian by any stretch of the imagination. And he's he, he's one of these crazy leftists who, who's like, oh, you should wear a mask, you idiot. And, you know, don't be a COVID idiot. He's one of those those idiots. But but when it comes to Elon Musk, he actually called it pretty early on. He was he was making fun of Elon Musk as, as early as, as 2017, 2018, back when everybody was like looking at him as being the smartest man in the world. He was calling out on his, his bullshit long before. So so I wish I could say that I was just really, really smart and figured out that Elon Musk was full of shit early on. Um, but yeah, maybe I, maybe I did fall into the hyperloop, you know, hyperloop, you know, hype, so to speak. Or maybe I did fall for that until I kind of saw Thunderfoot kind of point out how this doesn't make any sense scientifically to use a, a vacuum tube to transport people. And he pointed out all the dangers and he pointed out the fact that this is not a new idea. This idea has been around for a hundred years and there's a reason why no one's used it for a hundred years because of all these faults. But then, you know, I listened to libertarians saying, oh, isn't Elon Musk great? Uh, because he's gonna, you know, he's gonna come out with a better transportation system than, uh, than the stupid uh, high-speed rail that they're trying to build in California. Um, and, uh, and it's like, you know, it's as a libertarian, you want to be like, yeah, you know, rah, rah, free market, you know, private business creates this stuff. But, but yeah, I just kind of felt in, you know, when, uh, when Jack Dorsey kind of first came out and, uh, and was, was getting into Bitcoin, 
lot of Bitcoiners got excited. They're like, oh, cool. Jack Dorsey's on board. He's, he's a Bitcoiner. Good, good. Well, you know, let's get the next big guy. What about Elon Musk? And I was just like, he's not going to, he's not your guy. I just, I'm like, he's like, I would like, I, I predicted that Elon Musk would start his own shitcoin. That's what I predicted. I think back in 2019, I, I thought it was 2018, but then I look, went back and I looked at my old tweets and I was like, actually it was 2019. But, um, but yeah, I, I predicted, I'm like, and I mean, I was sort of wrong because he did adopt Bitcoin. Elon Musk did in his company, but that was because I didn't see Michael Saylor coming. I couldn't have predicted that Michael Saylor would have orange pilled him. And I think Michael Saylor did orange pill him to, to some extent. So um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't want to take credit for being, you know, super smart on this, but I just kind of knew, and, and, you know, we don't need them. We don't need Elon. We don't need anybody. We don't even need Michael Saylor. Bitcoin is going to be just fine, even, even without a Michael Saylor. Um, but I mean, it's good. It's good that people like Saylor and Jack Dorsey are around. Don't get me wrong, but again, we're not beholden to them and we don't care, um, to, to tell them off if they say something stupid. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. Jack Dor Dorsey is definitely kind of an anomaly, and it's hard for me to. Uh, well, I think it'd be unfair to say that I I could really understand anybody and their motivations uh, because people are so different, and I don't really know anything about him other than he's the CEO of Twitter and Square. Uh, but yeah, he he definitely isn't interesting to me. Do you have any thoughts on the ESG movement? Well, one thing to, to say about before we get to ESG, one, one quick point about Jack Dorsey is when Jack Dorsey became uh, a big time Bitcoiner, I thought that it was great. I thought this is the maturation of, of, of the of Bitcoin movement. The, our future, you know, Bitcoin evangelists aren't going to be, they're not going to be Roger Veer. They're not going to be people who, you know, are anarchists who talk the talk, who say all the right things. They're going to be people who say the wrong things. Maybe they're bad on quote unquote censorship, although that's kind of a loaded topic, but they kind of get Bitcoin. So to me, I thought of it as a maturation. You're not going to take over the world with a new currency if it's known as the libertarian currency. So to me, I was very, very happy to see, uh, even though I may disagree with Jack Dorsey on a lot of stuff, I was very happy to see him on board and it seemed like he got it. Uh, regarding the ESG movement, um, I'm kind of on board with, uh, with, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't really listen to uh, one of the, one of the well-known podcasts that I've just never really gotten into. And it's not anything against the people who do it, but I've never really gotten into tales from the crypt. I've never been a regular listener of that, but I've been really happy with what um, I think it was Matt O'Dell was saying about the ESG movement. I'm on board with him. I, he I heard him on Twitter spaces saying we should not, uh, I'm, hope I, I'm hoping it was Matt O'Dell. I hope I'm not getting that wrong. But uh, he was like, I 100% agree with him. We should not um, friggin' um, um, accept the premise of the ESGers. Uh, I mean, I believe he or somebody else used the word terrorist. That's right. We should we should call out their bullshit. We should fight it head on. We shouldn't try to kind of go the route of, oh, okay, well, you know, uh, Bitcoin uses uh, renewable energy. Um, we shouldn't do that. We should just point out that, you know, renew Bitcoin doesn't use um, um, Bitcoin doesn't use as much energy as they're as they're making out to. They feel it, 
you know, Bitcoin, we have to get out there and, and tackle the narrative head on. We shouldn't kind of be uh, afraid of, of fighting these guys. Uh, just like we're not afraid of some billionaire coming out and saying something bad about Bitcoin, we shouldn't be afraid of these ESGers. We should uh, take them on head on, call them idiots, call them uh, and point out that um, um, that the whole climate narrative is, is just completely wrong. And if you care about the environment, you should be supporting Bitcoin. If you actually care about the environment, none of these guys actually care about the, not, none of the ESG people care about the environment, but if you actually care about the environment, you should be out there promoting Bitcoin. If you actually care about inequality, you should be out there promoting Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. All these things that, that people you know, claim they, they are in favor of, but they're really not, they don't care about. You need to be out there in favor of Bitcoin because Bitcoin has no leader. There's nobody in charge of the money printer. Um, uh, and um, so it's the, it's the most fair distribution. So you, unlike the current system where the guys at the top get the money first, the cantillioners get the money first, Bitcoin is actually fair. So if you care about inequality, you should be in favor of Bitcoin. If you care about... Uh, the environment. And if you want to motivate people to kind of think more long term, have a low time preference, and you want to motivate people to not go into debt, to not uh, consume and to actually save and conserve, you know, be a conservationist, then you should be promoting Bitcoin. And if you're not, you're just a LARPer. You're, you're, you're someone who, who lives on Park Avenue in New York, and you take private jets everywhere, and you, and you never go to the wilderness, but then you claim that you care about the wilderness, even though you never go there. You, you stay in your, you know, the so-called uh, Park Avenue um, environmentalists. Uh, I don't know if, uh, if you've heard that phrase before, but uh, uh, but yeah, we, we should not be afraid of these people. We should call them out for their hypocrisy. And uh, and yeah, ridicule is not is not a, is not a bad word. We need to ridicule them because their narrative is patently absurd. The fact that the fact that a Tesla is better for the environment, the fact that a wind farm is better for the environment, we need to call that shit out. Wind farms take up so much land uh, to produce the same amount of energy. Solar farms take up so much land to produce a tiny amount of energy. And pollution, don't get me wrong, I hate pollution. Pollution is bad. But pollution is not the worst thing for the environment. There is actually one thing that is worse for the environment than pollution. Can you guess what it is, Alex? Uh, it's okay if you don't know, but because a lot of people don't know. Probably mining, tearing up the earth. Yeah, that's a good one, actually. That's kind of what I, where I was going. What's worse for the environment than even pollution is habitat destruction. Mm -hmm. Habitat destruction is a bigger threat to the environment than pollution. I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying pollution is good. Pollution is bad, too, and we should try to limit pollution. Uh, uh, absolutely, pollution does harm the environment. But habitat destruction is a bigger threat to the environment than pollution is. You can clean up pollution. If you destroy a habitat, it's gone. You can't rebuild it. So if you're going to take desert landscape which is which a lot of animals and plants live in, and you're going to destroy it to put up a stupid wind farm that breaks down, that gets dust on the actual reflectors, and you can't even get the the, the power that you think you were going to get, and you wasted all this precious desert landscape land, and you made your stupid solar farm where now it doesn't even work, and if it does, when it does work, it's intermittent at best, and it doesn't actually give you consistent energy, and you're saying you're doing this for the environment. You know what? That angers me. It very much angers me because I actually care about the environment and I don't want habitats destroyed. You know what? Let's build more nuclear plants. The footprint of a nuclear plant is much smaller. Let's build more nuclear plants. We'll reduce emissions. We'll reduce carbon. If you think carbon's a problem, we'll, we'll get rid of the carbon output. I like the fact that I live here in New Hampshire and there's a, a nuclear power plant not too far from me. Um, I think maybe 30, 40 miles away from me. Um, so I get cheap, you know, cheaper electricity consistent cheap electricity and it's it's emission free you know there's no uh, 
Uh, there's no carbon, there's no pollution, and it's on a small footprint. It's on a small piece of land. Uh, you can go drive by it and see it. You know, you know, it's it's kind of a cool little. In fact, I'm thinking about moving closer to it just so I could uh, get irradiated, and maybe get some superpowers or something <laughs> from the nuclear plant. Yeah. Yeah, and there's some interesting. Uh, we, I've talked about nuclear a couple times on the podcast. There's some pretty interesting developments that would make it a lot more efficient and um, smaller scale, potentially and safer. Uh, and I think a lot of people refer back to in their heads nuclear like 50, 60 years ago um, when they're thinking about it today. That there's not been any improvements. But yeah, that idea of environmental destruction, like you were talking about, is definitely a huge one. It's one that I've, um, you know, been thinking about a lot in Arizona, you know, specifically with how our cities are impacting, um, the environment and rainfall and, you know, all the pesticides and stuff like that, that we're using. I, I think what it comes down to at the end of the day is these, these people want to control and manipulate. It, it's, it's the fallacy that central planning, you know, is good in any way, shape or form. It's inherently bad and destructive and that it, when it's applied to anything and yeah, the CSG movement is, you know, kind of funny. I'm, I'm going to be doing a deep dive on it uh, on my other show, toxic airwaves. And, uh, you know, one of the big, the first, um, groups to suggest ESG was BlackRock. And, and I think that's just, yeah. In, in like 2004, the people that are buying up all the houses so that we can't buy houses. Like, yeah. These aren't a, good. Lot of, a lot of uh, social justice there with BlackRock. Yeah, Black running a charity, don't you know? Yeah, it's it's about control. It, that's what it is at the end of the day. People don't want you to be free. They don't want you to, um, you know, be able to live unencumbered. Um, and yeah, for whatever reason, I don't know. It's sick. It's the ESG movement is, you know, just. Uh, supporting and parroting the ideas of people that want population control. Uh, and, yeah. Well, I actually, um, I think it was maybe a, a year and a half ago or something like that. Uh, um, Peter McCormack had on his uh, not not what Bitcoin did, but his other his other podcast, his non Bitcoin podcast, uh, a guy who's huge into climate change. And this guy talked, and Peter talked for about an hour and 20 minutes, whatever it was, hour and a half about climate change, how it's real, how it's, you know, it's, you know, and uh, how these evil Republicans are trying to shut it down and this and that. And, you know, um, and I was, I listened, it was, it was torturous. It was a torturous podcast to get through, but I listened to the entire thing. And the reason why I listened to the entire thing is I was waiting to hear one word, nuclear. I was waiting to hear the word nuclear somewhere in this podcast and it never came up. He never brought it up. Peter never brought it up. Um, and Peter was like saying, hopefully some of these, you know, Bitcoiners will listen to this and kind of realize that climate change is real and we need to do this. So I actually talked to Peter in person um, about a week after I listened to that podcast. And I, I, I told him I listened to it and he asked me, did it trigger you? I'm like, yes, it did actually. But I was, I was waiting to hear about nuclear and uh, nuclear, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna take climate change seriously, nuclear has to be a solution. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So, so Peter, apparently, he's, he's fine with nuclear. But I'm just wondering, because I, uh, I don't think a lot of these guys that, that will scream about climate change um, actually look at nuclear as a solution. That's how you know they're LARPers. Um, again, to bring up Thunderfoot again, 
crazy leftist, you know, but, and he thinks climate change is a big, big threat to the world. But if you listen to him, he's actually a fan of nuclear energy. And he actually points out on his channel how nuclear energy is safe. And it's not, you know, don't listen to all these, you know, people screaming about Fukushima and, and Chernobyl and how he points out the facts about how safe it is and how, no, your fish, if you catch fish from the Pacific Ocean, it's not irradiated. You know, that's all bullshit. He, he points out all this stuff. So to Thunderfoot's credit, he's actually, he's one of those leftists that I, you know, that I respect because he actually looks at nuclear as a solution to climate change. You know, he's a scientist, he's a, he's a chemist. So he understands this stuff better than a lot of people. I'll have to go follow him. Yeah. It's, it's such a taboo subject and hopefully, you know, that will change in the future. I think we're going to see, I know India is really pushing for nuclear power and if they're successful, I think we're going to see that impact the rest of the world as well. And, uh, hopefully, yeah. I, I'm feeling pretty pessimistic about the U.S. Uh, currently. Um, what What's giving you hope for the future and getting you excited? Um, I think that things are always, and I, I know that what I'm going to say is very controversial and a lot of people are going to you know, not like that I'm saying this, but I really think that, that things are getting better. And um, things are usually getting better, but they always appear to be getting worse. And that's the same for even liberty. Um, I feel like we are getting more freer and we are getting, you know, things are getting better. But the problem is, is that when you, when things get better, you tend to notice the bad things more. Mm -hmm. As for example, just as a quick example, um, poverty was, was, was dropping a lot in, in America in the 1950s. The poverty rates were dropping like crazy. But in the 1960s, we got Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society programs. Why? Why did we have the Great Society programs in the 60s? Because, because poverty was, was dropping so quickly, it became more, more noticeable. When you did have poverty, it was more noticeable because it wasn't like, you know, the normal thing. So, um, so to me, I think that's the same thing. Uh, you know, you go on Twitter, you see all this negative things about, you know, forced vaccines and travel restrictions and uh, liberty is dying and all this stuff. And, um, but to be honest, things are getting better. I mean, one of the biggest unforced errors that I think that the uh, that the authoritarians did in 2020 was to shut down the schools. And, and I think that the fact that they shut down the schools and their kids did fine and thrived and were able to learn and, you know, or went to went to school on Zoom and or whatever, I, I, I think and, and I'm talking as someone who doesn't have any kids. So, so I'm probably not the, the biggest expert on this. You're probably better off talking to a parent with, with children who, who went through this. But to me, I feel like the fact that, you know, we, we showed uh, the world that these, you know, public school teachers are just, you know, um, they don't care about the kids. They just, you know, they're LARPers or whatever. And, uh, and you can, your kids can do just fine learning and, and thriving and being much happier having a much happier childhood with their hanging out with their parents more rather than being off in some prison for, you know, six or seven hours a day. Um, I think that things are getting better. I mean, if you look objectively at say something simple like gun laws, you look at the gun laws in, in America in the 1950s and you compare it to the gun laws here, they were, they're way better now. More and more places every day are, are switching to constitutional carry. They're, they're lifting restrictions. Um, you look at, something like um, homeschooling or something like that. Homeschooling was a very taboo subject in, you know, 1950s America. And, you know, it was, it was probably illegal in like 48 states or 40, you know, 40 something states to even homeschool. But now it's like almost every state allows for homeschooling. Uh, 
Uh, and you know, some are more permissive than others. Some are more restrictive than others. But but the trends are actually going in the right direction. This is what you know. People you know, people always like to look at the the downside, the doom and gloom. We've had these gold bugs, which I'm sure I guess you consider yourself to be a part of that, uh, who've been crying wolf about hyperinflation for forever, and uh, and it's not coming, or, or it hasn't came yet. That doesn't mean it's not coming. It could could still be coming, but we may never get that hyperinflation, at least not in America. Uh, we may just get us, to me, I, I see a slow moving um, um, trend without a big collapse towards a Bitcoin standard. And I think we kind of saw that in um, in El Salvador. We just always, uh, to parrot what I heard uh, um, Austrian economist uh, Peter St. Ange say recently, he said, uh, he said that we always assumed that going to Bitcoin would be, uh, would be a collapse, but El Salvador showed us that no it doesn't have to be collapsed it could just be you know what we're adopting bitcoin tomorrow you know <laughs> that's and the same thing may happen um in america we may not need a collapse we're not a doomsday cult guys we're not rooting for the for the world to go to hell we want good things for everybody we care about people that's why we're libertarians it's because it's not because we're selfish because we want people to thrive and i do think that uh things uh, are getting better although the perception is the opposite so hopefully that wasn't too controversial of a take no, I love that. Yeah, I, I love that too. And I think it's really refreshing. And uh, it's, it kind of goes back to this idea of like, whatever you focus on in your life will become uh, reality to some sort. I'm not like a person that believes in the secret, you know, and that that nonsense. Um, but I mean, it's true. If I focus on myself being a piece of shit, I'll probably act like a piece of shit. If I focus on myself being a you know, good, helpful person to others, I'll be a lot more successful in doing that. And it's, it's really specifically with the gun laws that you brought up. A lot of people don't talk about that. And it's not very convenient for the NRA, you know, and other groups that are trying to raise money, um, you know, for that to be, you know, common knowledge. Uh, but I do want to throw in one jab at Texas and this Texas just recently uh, passed constitutional carry, which kind of shows how much of a LARPer state that is. Um, but. Yeah, been saying the same thing. They, uh, um, yeah, you know, it's funny because I was talking to um, to a couple that was moving from Texas and they were like considering moving to Massachusetts. And I was like, well, why don't you, if you're, why are you moving to Massachusetts? They're like, oh, for work. And I'm like, well, why don't you, you know, you could live in New Hampshire and commute to work in Massachusetts. And then I, I was talking about the gun laws, comparing Texas to to New Hampshire, and I'm like, you gotta understand, uh, New Hampshire's gun laws make Texas look like California. <laughs> and said they said, yeah, but there's one problem with that. I'm like, what is that? It's like New Hampshire's not filled with Texans. <laughs> so, as in, you know, Texans are always you know spoiling for a fight, or they're always looking to get into a gunfight or whatever. So, you know, New Hampshire maybe is more laid back and chill, whereas. Uh, Texas is, you know, a bunch of Texans who are, you know, there to get in, go, go to a bar and get into an argument with someone. So, but, uh, but yeah, absolutely right. And uh, even, even now with, with their constitutional carry, I still think the, the laws in New Hampshire are pretty good because um, I think it only costs 10 bucks for to buy a, to get a permit here in New Hampshire. And it's optional, obviously it's optional because it's constitutional carry. So it only costs like 10 bucks and, uh, and you get your, your permit in like 15 days. I do have the permit 
Uh, the reason why I got it is because some states will recognize it. So if I travel to another state like Florida, if I have that permit, it's actually pretty good to have. So even though it's optional, it, I still think it's a good idea to get the permit. You know, super cheap and super fast. Yeah, I think I think that's a good idea. It's the same issue that we have in Arizona going over to New Mexico or um, yeah, some of the California sure doesn't recognize that. <laughs> no, no. They, but, they, they, but that might change. You know, we never know if uh, – if someone brings the right case, uh, because in the, if you're not a resident of Massachusetts, even though Massachusetts is pretty much an anti-gun state, if you're not a resident of Massachusetts, you can at least apply to get a permit in Massachusetts. You don't have to be a, a resident. You can apply for a non-resident permit. California does not allow that. So if I reside in another state and I'm visiting California, so I just lose like they have to at least have a way to apply. I feel like that there might be a case there. I'm not probably, I'm probably not going to be the one to bring it, but some there might be a case there where I, California should at least go through the motions and say, yes, if you're a non-resident and you're visiting California, you can apply for a permit. You can do it in, you know, New Hampshire, you can apply for a non-resident permit in New Hampshire. If you're not, if you don't live here um, and a lot of States do allow that. I think even maybe even New York, I believe as, as anti-gun as New York is, I believe in New York at least allows you to apply. They, they're probably going to deny you, but they, they will at least, you know, say, yeah, here's the application if you want to apply. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that'll change. Maybe because they're, they are, um, I think the funny headline that I saw regarding gun laws was, um, do you lose, um, do you lose your bill of rights protections if you're not at home? If you leave your house, do you lose your, you know, your first amendment, right? Do you lose your second amendment? Apparently everyone's arguing. Yeah. You lose, if you, as long as you're, if you leave your house, you are no longer protected by the second amendment. The second amendment only applies when you're in your house. And that's just kind of a patently absurd standard. And I'm hoping somebody challenges that and, and, and that, and, and all these restrictions on gun laws go away. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm just so excited about uh, deterrence dispensed and what those guys are doing because they, I think it's a similar idea as Bitcoin where we use technology to really protect our freedoms. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's kind of the theme of uh, the sovereign individual is um, I think society kind of moves forward through, not through people suddenly, you know, realizing that there's a better way to do things, but, but from technology allowing, you know, all these great things to happen. Yeah. I think that's a great premise. I mean, yeah. Where, where's, Oh. Yeah. No, what was the company you just mentioned? I don't think I was too familiar with them. Deterrence Dispense. That's Cody Wilson's company. Oh, Deterrence. Okay, because I had heard of this Defense Distributed, but I hadn't heard oh. of Deterrence. Is that the same thing? or? Yeah, maybe I messed up the name. Okay, yeah, the Defense. I heard of Defense Distributed, but maybe Cody Wilson has a Deterrence. Maybe they have two companies. I don't know. Defense Distributed. I might have messed it up. Yeah. yeah. Defense Distributed was very cool. Uh, yeah, Cody Wilson, he also, uh, you know, early on very much into Bitcoin, him and Amir Taki uh, were, were very much uh, working on Bitcoin. I don't know what he's doing with Bitcoin these days, but, uh, but absolutely Cody Wilson. Uh, I didn't, I was, I was supposed to meet Cody Wilson um, at um, Acapulco, Mexico back in 2015. Cause I, I went to there to that conference and he was supposed to be there. So I was looking forward to meeting him in person, but uh, he didn't, he, he said he didn't want to leave the United States, but uh so he, he, he couldn't show up. So unfortunately, I've never had, got a chance to, to meet him in person. Yeah, I could see why he wouldn't want to live, leave the U.S. He could be a target. So yeah. Mexico is uh, very anti-gun in a lot of ways. Uh, 
Well, I think the issue, I think for him, the issue wasn't so much that he was going to be targeted in Mexico, but he didn't want to run into any issues coming back. And I, I, I don't know, I can't speak for him, but that's that was my understanding. But it, it, it could be the, what you thought too. But yeah, defense distributed, absolutely, Cody Wilson. That's the way to do it is, is with uh, technology, kind of uh, making the first and second amendment the same thing. That's kind of the, the tact he took. And, um, and yeah, that's... Uh, that's the way to do it. Absolutely. You don't ask for permission. You kind of, uh, you kind of force the issue. And I think that's what Bitcoin is doing. Bitcoin is forcing the issue. And so is a lot of technologies. They're kind of forcing the issue. Yeah. Where, where are some good places people can follow you, follow your work? Um, yeah, you can just follow me on Twitter. It's probably the best place at Bitcoin motorist on Twitter. Um, I do have a YouTube channel, but I haven't really, um, done much with it in years. I have a few old videos, on the YouTube channel, but uh, yeah, YouTube channel is also under my name, uh, Bitcoin Motorist. Uh, but yeah, and I'll be um, I'll be uh, moderating a panel or two at an upcoming conference in Ensenada, Mexico, Ugly Old Goats Conference. So check out that conference um, if you if you can be in the area in August. I believe it's August uh, 12th to the 15th. Uh, go check out that conference. Um, if you go to my Twitter page, there's an actual. Um, a discount, a 15% discount. You can get the conference if you use that that link on my on my Twitter page. Um, and uh, the uh, the conference fee includes a hotel. So right. people asking me like, oh, like what about the hotel? I'm like, no, that that includes the, the the conference and the hotel. They're both included, and they'll pick you up from the airport too. So if you're flying into, say, Tijuana, they'll send a van to pick you up, so you don't have to worry about getting to the to the venue either. So yeah, that's kind of uh, where I'm going to be. I'm going to be in, um, in in Baja California in August. Uh, moderating some conferences, moderating some panels at, at Ugly Old Goats Conference. So I'm really looking forward to that. I'm really excited about that. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm, my DMs are open. So if anyone has any specific questions, feel free to reach out to me on, on DMs. I'm pretty good at, uh, at responding to them. Yeah, I think I'm busy in August, but I was looking up the, it's only a six and a half hour drive from uh, Tucson, which I think is pretty, I need to spend more time in Mexico. With our, with our Phoenix meetup that we have, we kind of have an ongoing joke of um, having a race to see who would buy the Baja Peninsula first. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, I think I do think Baja California is like the best part of Mexico. And, um, I, you know, obviously Mexico could be dangerous. I mean, we know that there's crime that happens there, but I feel like Baja California is is safer. One of the reasons why is because there's basically one highway going in and one, you know, there's one highway that goes down the middle of the peninsula. And that highway is monitored by the Mexican military, <laughs> which you may think is bad, but it's actually good. Um, you don't want the federales or, or the local municipal police monitoring that highway. You want the, you want the Mexican national military doing it because those guys are, you know, they're, they're less likely to be, you know, uh, to be locals who kind of know the local, you know, gangs and stuff. And they may just be just some 18, 19 year old dudes who are just standing there doing their job. And, um, and, and I mean, if something, if we had a checkpoint, if we had a military checkpoint in America, we'd all be screaming about how unconstitutional this is. This is unfair, you know, you blah, blah, blah. But in Mexico, it's a different feel. You want to have a military checkpoint to make sure the cartel is not going down, down the peninsula. Well, we do have uh, military checkpoints of some sort in Arizona with the Border Patrol. Yeah, I, I've heard about that. I thought about driving through those just to just to fuck with them, but I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't mess with them too much. I know people that do, but I 
they start getting too uh asking me too many questions i just yeah. i think it was mark edge a free stater who actually drove through one of them i don't know if it was in arizona or, or new mexico but he actually drove through one of the border patrol uh checkpoints and he re recorded it and uh they were asking him questions and Mark Edge was pretty funny. He was like, do you have a reasonable, articulable suspicion that I have committed a crime over and over again? It was pretty good. He actually did pretty well in that checkpoint because they eventually they're like, dude, fuck this guy, wave him through. <laughs> yeah, they've got these weird cameras that they always shine at the car. Um, I don't know what they are to probably see inside of it. Hopefully it's not some sort of x-ray, um, but... Uh, that would be a bummer getting cancer from border patrol but uh <laughs> actually we have that issue here in new hampshire too um on every year on the way to pork fest not on not on the way up because it's pork fest is kind of close to the canadian border so it's like north of, of north of where i live not on the way to but on the way back from pork fest um they used to report that there was border patrol checkpoints coming back um although we haven't had them from what i've heard um in the last two or three years um, but they did used to have, and so we would communicate like through telegram or sometimes through CB radio uh, to say, Hey, has anyone seen a checkpoint? Like if we were on to avoid the checkpoint, which way we should go to try to try to route around it. If there was a border patrol checkpoint, but thankfully we haven't had those in the last two, three years, maybe because we free staters have been spotting them and communicating with each other to warn people to go around them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, man, now that you mentioned the Canadian border, we might have a refugee crisis of people fleeing Canada here pretty soon. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel so bad for people who live in places like Canada and Australia. You know, I just, I can't imagine going through that New Zealand, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's just, just a throw, you know, I used to be like, yeah, I want to go visit Australia. I want to go visit New Zealand. I don't want to fucking go to Australia or New Zealand anymore. No fucking way would I go there, at least not without some some huge, huge changes. Yeah. Well, I don't even think we can get into those countries. Um, I mean, the UK is just bonkers, too. It seems like the entire, mo most of Europe is wild right now. Yeah. 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 Well, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. This is a lot of fun. It was it was a blast. Thank you so much for, for uh, having me on, Alex. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Thanks again, Patrick. Hopefully I'll see you at Porkfest or one of these conferences coming up. Yeah, I'm sure I'll see you around. We'll, you know, we'll hit the circuit. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I really enjoyed that conversation with uh, the Bitcoin motorist. Uh, I really appreciated his optimism kind of towards the end of the conversation about how we are actually growing more free. And I think that's something that's important to highlight. There's a lot of awful stuff happening right now in regards to you know ESG movement, vaccine passports. We just got out of a year of lockdowns. Uh, but in some ways, we're freer than we've ever been. And I think we're progressing forward as humanity. And it's so great to have something like Bitcoin that is such a strong way to protect individual liberties and rights. And I think uh, we live truly at a pivotal Point in human history in a really exciting time. So yeah, big thank you to Bitcoin Motorist. Definitely encourage you to go follow him on Twitter. I always enjoy reading the stuff that he's talking about and have a good one.